Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hi everybody, this is the Cricket Badger podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bêche, meaning digger. Hello everybody, welcome along. It's a Cricket Badger podcast with a slight difference today. You've been watching our England against India test match dailies and talking about all things the test matches. We've done the IPL, we're going about to start to the second half of the IPL as well. But every now and again on the uh, Cricket Badger podcast we break away and we actually talk to people about what they're up to, their love of cricket. And uh, in Tom's case, I'll introduce him in just a second, his career um, outside of cricket as well. But Tom Holland, historian, TV presenter, radio presenter, author, loads of, there's a long list. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. And, and great to be here. Very, very grateful to be on. And uh, and charity walker and uh, benefit year this, this year as year. well. It's a one-off, but yes, this year. Well, let's, let's talk about that because it's, it's the author's um, cricket team, isn't it, that you, you play for and you, you've been right. awarded the benefit for. And this is a quite a long-standing cricket team, isn't it, who basically a set of writers that get together and play cricket. Well, it goes all the way back to Arthur Conan Doyle, um, P.G. Woodhouse, Jerome K. Jerome, J.M. Barry. So really, you know, really major names. They're big paths to fill, aren't they, or whatever? Really, well, Conan Doyle famously got uh, W.G. Grace out. It'd be a terrible poem about it. I don't have it to hand, which is probably just as well, because anyone who likes poetry would flinch, I think, and go pale at the sound of it. Did, did W.G. Grace walk, or did he say this, the public have come to see me like he tended to? He'd already scored 100. Ah, well, yeah. Yeah. I've I've never never had that luxury in my own cricket career to be able to... uh... So the the heyday was before the First World War, and then obviously the First World War put a bit of a dampener on things. And it's it's been the authors have been refounded sporadically ever since. Recent incarnation, they were founded in um, 2011. So uh, we've all been playing for about ten uh, for for a decade, which of course is is after a decade you you're eligible for a for a, um, a benefit. So that's what I've been awarded. 
Um, very exciting. <laughs> and basically, of course, you know, normally a bet, you know, benefit for county player, you have matches and it's it goes to the county player. In my case, the money is going towards three homelessness charities. I really like that as well, Tom, because I it, before I got into working in cricket about 2005, 2006, I was actually a housing officer for a local authority, changed career completely, um, worked with homeless people. And uh, and I think you said, to, you know, talk, talk us through the three causes. And, and while you're doing that, I'll flash up the links that people give to your, uh, your benefit. So the first one is The Passage, which is a um, very established homelessness charity, um, works across the board. Um, the second one is um, it's a project under the umbrella of St. Martin in the Fields, which is the church just off Trafalgar Square in the middle of London that has a, a kind of incredible track record of, of helping the homeless. And what, what this project is, it's a help specifically for women who are long term homeless to give them a space that is women only so that they, they can have kind of long term shelter and not kind of worry about the things that come from, you know. Yeah. Not in a women-only centre. Um, and the third one is is um, a slight change of emphasis, and it's a, a, a charity that's helping the Yazidis, who are a religious minority in Iraq, that were horribly targeted for persecution by the Islamic State in 2014, when the Islamic State invaded and, and conquered a large stretch of northern Iraq. And they um, they massacred the men they captured, often crucified them. And they, um, uh, I mean, they literally enslaved women and girls as young as eight, took them off into, into slavery, sex slavery, every kind of slavery you could imagine. And although the Islamic State had been defeated, um, there's still a lot of the scars of this are terrible and, and their homes have been absolutely destroyed. So they're still in refugee camps. Um, and I, I made a film about them five years ago and so they they live in my memory like that and when I was out in Iraq it was it was kind of very hot and I was I, I visited one of the, their main settlement where the Islamic State were a couple of miles away across open ground and we went to visit a, a place where a whole group of women had been shot so their bones were, were, were littered everywhere and I kind of the thought of playing cricket came into my mind as something to cling on to amid all the horror and the bleakness of this and so when I came back I the converse of that was that I would try and keep them in my mind when I was playing cricket so that's very much been the inspiration for this is keeping in mind people who, you know, I, I just feel so lucky playing cricket and particularly for the authors. We play such wonderful, wonderful places um, that it's just a way of, of hopefully trying to get some money off the back of that, that we can help with people who are, who are much less fortunate. Anybody watching the podcast, there's the, there's the link, and I'll stick it on the link for the uh, people that uh, listen to this later on the audio. Uh, you laughed when I said the traditional audio platform, because podcasts haven't been around for long. So <laughs> traditional is all relative, I guess, isn't it? This is what the problem, one of the problems with kind of making a reference like that to a historian, I guess, because your, your um, sort of length of time stretches a lot further back. Well, I, I do a podcast as well uh, called The Rest is History, and we did one last week where we interviewed Mark Andreessen, who is an absolute kind of tech titan. He basically invented the web browser. He's on the board yeah. of Facebook, all kinds of things like that. And he was talking to us about the, the history of Silicon Valley, which I think is really interesting. I mean, it's recent history, but it's seismic history. And by the end, you know, the discussion of history had become a discussion of the future. And this is absolutely, you know, what historians look at. I've had that conversation a lot with people about how things just in my lifetime have moved on. 
when, when I was a kid, there were three channels on the television. Um, I think we were about the same age, actually, but there were, there were about three channels on the same television. We got Channel 4. That was a major event. Now, there's, there are hundreds of TV channels. Tech, you know, we, we, can, we can do this. And we can talk to each other and broadcast live via our laptops and, and what have you. Yeah. Things are just crazy. I mean, what, what's it going to be like in 30, 40 years' time? It's, it's scary almost. I imagine we'll have kind of chips embedded in our hair and we'll just be able to kind of blink, <laughs> see everything scroll in front of us. Yeah. But I, was, I was kind of thinking that about the, um, the, uh, the lack of television coverage this summer because mm. one of the things I felt this summer about cricket and the international cricket and the domestic cricket was I had absolutely no sense at all of the structure of it. Uh, it. It had completely blurred. I didn't know when the tests were, you know, what the hundred were. I mean, it was all just a complete mess. And I, I remembered how structured the season was when I first got into cricket in, in 81 and through the 80s, that you knew, that you know, when the one-day matches would be, when the tests would be, when the, the county finals would be, what the championship structure was. And it's it seemed to kind of reflect the fact that there was really a BBC and even though it was really annoying and it would you know, endlessly be going off to racing or whatever, it did kind of anchor you. You kind of knew where to look. Whereas now, I feel like, you know, a kind of a boy in a sweetie shop and I just don't know where to begin. There's mm. just too, almost too much. Choice is too great. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I think, I mean, the premise of the hundreds, which I'm not a big fan of, um, but the premise of the hundred in terms of attracting a new audience, I think the, what you've just said there, the foundation of attracting a new audience is give them a landscape that can actually get their heads around. And at the moment, it is all a bit scattergun. And the ECB admitted, I think, this summer that they uh, the fixtures needed to be a little bit more coordinated. Cricket's a game played with balls. You've got to look after them in the field. Badges are furry creatures. My friends at manscaped.com help you make sure it's neat and tidy down there. Oh, get rid of all that excess fur. Make sure that you're neat and tidy. Make sure everything's in the right order. Oh, feeling all good now down in this set. Oh, manscaped.com. Maximum skin-safe performance, compact design, advanced engineering, ceramic blade, waterproof. And it doesn't end there. Show you care by caring for your pair. Cleansers, revivers, preservers. Simply go to manscaped.com, quote the discount code BADGER. You get 20% off, you get free shipping, and you get some seriously quality equipment. Manscaped.com, get on there now. Let's get let's get on to your your cricket walk that you did. You did it on uh, Monday the twenty third of August. If you kept to your schedule on that yeah. one, um, and you basically you, you walked was it fifty five miles? Was that fifty five miles in twenty four hours? Yeah, was- and you you basically took in some notable landmarks that were kind of cricket related as you went went along that walk. Yeah, so it was a, a kind of yes. It, so it was a cricket themed. It was a, a walk through cricket's history. And so we began at Bramley, which is a village outside Guildford. I imagine that you sat down and thought, what am I going to do for this benefit year? How am I going to raise some money? Yeah. And the cricket walk through cricket's history, that kind of combines the two things nicely, well, doesn't it? Well, we've done various things. So we've done um, we've done kind of evening events on Zoom when we were still under lockdown and quizzes and, and all kinds of things like that. And we've done auctions. But we did we, we also we did a walk earlier, so I think in April, where we walked from a cricket ground at one end of the M25 to the other end. So we began, I can't remember, it's a cricket ground directly above the M25. It's kind of amazing. Tunnel goes underneath it. And then oh, to the other end to Chertsey, which is where the middle stump was first right. used. We went via Lords 
uh, Craven Cottage and Twickenham. So there was kind of sports theme there. But then this time we focused just on the cricket and we discovered that, that you know, we, we made lots of, we, we, we raised a lot more sponsorship doing the walks than almost anything else. So that's why we wanted to do a second one. And we'd always thought it would be brilliant to do one that where we looked at, you know, we visited some of the sites of grounds that had played key role in the history of cricket, taverns where various lords had met up to draw up rules, all that kind of stuff. Um, famous people had lived, that kind of thing. Um, and we, yeah, we kind of looked at a map, <laughs> put the dots and then joined the dots up. Because the previous one was 45 miles in a day. And so we thought we'll go that little further. We'll do 55 miles in 24 hours. Um, and yeah, and so we went from, from um, Bramley, which was where the first recorded women's cricket match took place. And we walked to Lords. But we went, once we'd reached London, we started zigzagging all over the place. The, the first recorded women's match took place in, was it 1597? 1745. Okay. Reported the Reading Mercury, the greatest that was played in this part of England between 11 maids of Bramley and 11 maids of Hambledon, all dressed in white. The Bramley maids had blue ribbons and the Hambledon maids red ribbons on their heads. The girls bowled, batted, ran and catched as well as most men could do. So there was a, a tone of sexist sport reporting that you probably wouldn't be allowed. No. To do. I was just thinking that as you were reading that, that you wouldn't get Nasser Hussain and Shane Warne introducing <laughs> TV coverage in the same manner these days, would you? No, I, don't, I doubt they'd be wearing pink ribbons. <laughs> that, I imagine, as a historian, that kind of tickles your fancy in two ways there. You kind of the love of cricket and the love of history combined as you, as you meander around for 55 miles. Absolutely. Well, the fact that it's the fact that cricket is old, I have to admit, is a real part of the appeal to me. And I, but, but I also I like the way that cricket endlessly reinvents itself. So I actually liked the hundred because one of the things you realise when you look at the history of cricket and you think about how it's evolved over all these centuries is that it is a sport that, despite its reputation for kind of stuffiness and conservatism, is unbelievably innovative. And I think that one of the measures of that is precisely that today you have all these different formats. Um, I can't think of a comparable sport, really, where players play to the highest possible level in three completely different formats that require very different kind of attributes. Tom, these days, is white ball against red ball. It's almost like two separate sports under the same banner, really, isn't it? Yes, and I think, you know, even 50 over in 2020, um, you know, the, the mm. talents and the approach required is very different. And you said you didn't like the 100. I mean, I kind of, I, I watched several matches and... I was just stupefied by the, the level of skill. And then to, to see that kind of transferred back into the test arena, I thought, I, I think this is absolutely, you know, I started with a whinge, but I actually think this is an incredible age for cricket. I, I'll tell you very quickly why I don't like it. It's not because of the cricket. It's not because of the actual um, experience of watching the 100. I just think it has a knock-on effect to the rest of yeah, the domestic. I understand that. Yeah. yeah, it's bad for the counties and it's bad for um, the structure of the season. But also, I'll tell you the reason, my, my big gripe against it, you talked about history, there seemed to me an obvious way, because the, part of the appeal of county cricket is, of course, that it's rooted in history. Mm. So you've got that sense of, you know, deeply rooted in these these grounds, the statistics, all that, all those traditions. So I thought that one way around the whole problem of the fact that franchises don't have that would be to base it on the ancient Anglo-Saxon kingdom. So this was very much my pitch, that um, rather than having whatever it is, the Southern Braves or whatever, it should be Wessex, and you should okay. have the ancient battle flag of the Saxon kings, and you should have Mercia, and you should have the Danelaw, and you should have Northumbria, and all that kind of stuff. And I just thought that was much better. So the way that I got into it was that um, you know, if, if um, uh, we, we went to see um, the Southern Braves against 
was it London Spirit, the, the Erzatz Middlesex one at Lords. So I thought of it as as the West Saxons against the men of London and women of London Wick, and that really enhanced it for me. So I think I think that they missed a trick by not doing that. I think it would definitely have got the Anglo-Saxon fans. The names were peculiar and, and often controversial, I think, and, they, and changed a few times before they they settled on the final versions. Listening to the Cricket Badger podcast. Going back into your career then, as a history, I mean, obviously at school, I imagine history was a subject that enthralled you to some degree. But how, how did your career as a historian then develop? I mean, it's not necessarily something that you know, when kids are at school talking about being train drivers or, or whatever. Because <laughs> I read, you know, various books and I thought, oh, I'd love to write that. And, and essentially, that's what I've managed to do. So it's kind of a dream come true. We press record, Tom. I was commenting on your bookcase behind you, and then you just tilted your your. Um, yes, you going to do that? I want to see the full height of it, so that the viewers can actually see just how many books are in your. I mean, you have to scale that to actually. Hopefully, the ones right at the top. You said the ones right at the top of the cricket books, didn't you? Yeah, they are. They're the cricket books that I probably won't be reading soon yeah you, you almost um, need to make as much effort to get those top shelf books as you would to walk 55 miles eh? <laughs> i've got i've got another section of of treasured cricket books which i can sell so it's all very carefully <laughs> sorted and arranged yeah well i mean you can't write history without loads of books um, and that was particularly the case the library so actually the, the the number of books has swelled considerably <laughs> so i mean where, where'd you go then when you finished doing your, your university you got your degree you want to make a career in that how, how does that follow how do you get into history as a, as a job well i wanted to be a great i wanted to be a great novelist so i began as a novelist and um I, I wrote a novel in which lord byron was a vampire so byron was the model for the first vampire story and in my version he really was a vampire and it kind of did sufficiently well that i got a, a, a deal with both american and british publishers to do three more it didn't change the world but it gave me just enough to kind of keep going and they were all set in various different periods of history and i just realized that I, the history was i enjoyed writing about the history much more than i did in kind of making stuff up about vampires vampires had never really been part of my career plan so i, f- I finished that i worked that contract out and then i i, I thought well like, you know i just i'll write a, a book about actual history and i did it on the, the the two periods of history that i'd most loved which was the age of julius caesar uh so that was the first i wrote and then the um the, the Persian invasion of Greece, which is Marathon, Thermopylae, Salamis, you know, 300, Spartans and Speedos, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, they, that's essentially how I, 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 began, I kind of, it took me time to work out what it was that I wanted to do. So it's like, I guess, like kind of, you know, you focus on red ball cricket and then you discover actually you're a white ball cricketer or something like that. Um, it took me time to work out where I should probably be focusing my attention. I was, I was going to ask you a question that would have led you into that really, but if you were on Mastermind, what would be your specialist subject? And as a historian, do you have to have a specialist subject or can you be all years or all, all, all men kind of thing? Well, on Mastermind, uh, I don't know what my subject on mastermind would be it probably wouldn't be history because you'd want to you'd want to kind of snip things strategically wouldn't you i see um was it uh, somebody was on doing the career of gower of david gower recently okay. and i thought actually that's quite a good one because that one you can really kind of repair i guess if it was historical period it would be the persian wars but there's you know there's a lot of scope there to to get things wrong you know it's it's like you know the more you know about cricket the more you study it the more you're you know if you if you know everything about world cricket you're better qualified to write about english cricket right i mean that's mm-hmm. You know, or 
you know, if you know about English cricket, you're, you, you, it's be, you're a better equipped to write about Indian cricket or whatever. I, I, I find the more different periods of history I study, the kind of, the more I can write about it. And you've done TV documentaries as well. Islam and ISIS, I mean, there's two there that you, you've done for television, which obviously relate around the Muslim faith and the, the history of that area of the world. And I was actually watching one just before we, we started here. I was watching the first 10 minutes of one of your documentaries and um, I watched the rest of it when we finished. Is that a, a kind of a special subject? Is that something you enjoy or something that really interests you? It presumably it does. See, it, it, in a sense, the, the, the fields of history that I have explored have been conditioned by the previous works and areas. So my great interest was always the classical world, so Greece and Rome. But the more I wrote about them, the more I... I'd always had this kind of vague sense that they were basically like us. But the more I, I wrote about them, the more I felt these are people are unfathomably strange and different and alien. And it's not just a question of kind of translating things that we understand and, and, and putting it back in you know the, their exact equivalents. They, they occupy a completely different mindset. They're, they're spectacularly odd. And... I, I, the more I thought about, well, what is it that changed, the more I, I came to the conclusion that it's basically the emergence of Christianity and Islam. I wrote a, a, about Islam and then I've just written a book about Christianity. And I think that they are just massively, massively transformative in ways that we have now forgotten because we, in a sense, have been changed so deeply by them that we don't even appreciate it. And it's, it's the revolutions that kind of succeed that tend to be forgotten. It's the ones that fail that kind of, you know, that we yeah. remember. You know, whether it's in the Muslim world, the Islamic revolution, or in, in, in our world, the Christian revolution, so profound that essentially that's what I've, I, has become my great focus. What was it about Christianity, for instance, that means that the ancient world the classical world that preceded it is now so utterly different to us. I used to think when I, I mean I, I did history to A level, and I used to think when I was being taught it, if I was going to be a teacher, probably history would be my subject because once you've kind of got your head around it, you're saying the same things year on year. As a historian, though, I, I imagine that's not the case. It's not like set in stone. You are looking back in history. You are finding out new things. You are developing kind of uh, themes there. Yeah, I, I think I think that. Um, what tends to be most interesting about the past is the way that it's very different and the effort that's required to appreciate just how different it is. And I think also that, so one of the things that, that interests me about cricket is that we don't actually know where it comes from. And it's, 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 it, that, that then becomes kind of part of the appeal. And I think that I've always been very interested in the question of origins and where things begin and how far back can we trace stuff. And it's where the origin point starts to become blurred or mythical or fabricated or whatever that I find really interesting because that's kind of where you can see, you, you see the process by which civilization is made in a sense. And it could be, you know, a sport like cricket or it could be, you know, the history of a city like Rome or it could be the history of a great faith like Islam. That there's a point where the stories that are told of its beginnings are obviously mythical and the character of those myths are always fascinating to look at. If I was to tell you, you could have three people from history around for dinner and yes. you, want, you want to have a nice conversation and pick their brains about maybe some of the stuff that you've, you've um, studied in the past, who would you have around your dinner table? Okay, that's a great question. Um, I would have Herodotus, who is the first historian who writes the history of the Persian Wars, my favourite subject, and whose history I've translated, and who's just kind of infinitely fascinated about everything. I mean, he's interested in, in everything. And so his book is just fascinating, and he's a kind of endlessly curious, endlessly charming guy 
who I suspect would be great. I'd be quite, who, who would I, I mm, who else would I want? I would want, I'd be quite interested in meeting Lady Castlemaine, Barbara Villiers, who was Charles II's mistress, was kind of <laughs> famously horrible, but famously charismatic, incredibly entertaining to our, she bitch for England. <laughs> and I think that would be great fun. Uh, and I think I'd have Lord Byron, not least because we, I could talk to him about cricket because he was a, a very keen cricketer um, and actually played at Lords below somebody called Shakespeare. Wow. All right, you've got one, you've got one place setting left and you're allowed to have one cricketer to come along and join you. He can sit next to Byron and you can basically talk about cricket with this person. Live or dead? Um, I think Sangakara. Oh, wow. Okay. Incredibly interesting guy. Uh, who's very charming, clearly very charming, but just very smart and has obviously thought about cricket an enormous amount. Whenever I hear him talk about cricket, I always think, you're a very interesting man. I'd like to hear more. I, stories I've heard about Kim Sengakara is he's actually a, a real gentleman as well, a really nice bloke, as yeah. well as a very intelligent bloke, as well as a very fine cricketer. So I think he'd, I think he'd be able to handle Byron, who'd be a massive egotist. Uh, I think he'd be able to handle Lady Castlemaine, who I think would be trouble. Uh, and I, I'm sure he'd get on well with the Rodgers, who would be very interested to talk to him, explain cricket to him. So I think I think that would be a good. I think that would be a really good dinner party. Herodotus, the the writer that you admire and have translated, then are you the modern day version? No, I I, I wouldn't presume. Uh, I mean, I don't think anyone is remotely qualified to be the new Herodotus. But because basically, the new Herodotus is. Well, I mean, basically, it's Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> yeah. The thing about Herodotus, he he he's the first person really to write nonfiction. So he's he's the origin point for what I do um, because he's described as a historian. He does tell the story of the you know the Persian invasion, but he, but that's to do him down. I mean, he's interested in everything. He's interested in you know why Egyptian men peace sitting down and Egyptian women pee standing up. He's interested in why Scythians get stoned out on bongs. He's interested in animals he's interested in rivers he's interested in absolutely everything and it's that sense of kind of voracious curiosity that i think would make him just infinitely fascinating well you just said they interest me actually because i think for most people you think of history as a set of dates or who was king at the time or who was prime minister at a certain time or or whatever there's kind of like signposts in your brain but the some of the stuff that you just mentioned there at peeing, standing up and stuff. Yeah, it's how things were in those worlds as well, isn't it? It's, the, it's adding the colour to those dates, isn't it? Well, the thing, I mean, the thing is also with Herodotus, you're never entirely sure whether what he's saying is true. So he's known <laughs> as the father of history, but he's also been known as the father of lies. And he does come out, is that, I mean, is, is that a, um, a marmot behind you? It is. A, it's, a, it's quite a famous photograph, that. I had um, Philip Brown, the cricket photographer, on the podcast recently, and he was looking at that and he said, oh, James, that's the, uh, that's the award-winning um, photograph from about two or three years ago, isn't it? And I've had it blown up on the canvas. And I always looked at it as two very cute-looking animals that were running, sort of like frolicking along. And he said, you, you do realise that in about three seconds' time, the one on the left is going to eat the one on the right, don't you? <laughs> well, so uh, the reason I, I asked about that is that Herodotus tells this story about how in India there's loads of gold. And the way that the Indians get the gold is that um, they go out into the desert. And in the desert, there are giant ants that borrow down. And as they borrow down, they kick up the gold. And the Indians sneak up and grab the gold and then run away and the ants chase them. And they have to kind of, they, they cut off, uh, you know, various animals to, to throw to the giant ants who then eat the, the, uh, the thing. And people always cited this as an obvious example of the fact that Herodotus is mad and or making it up or stoned or whatever. You know, where is he getting this from? The, there is a brilliant theory that actually the Greek word that he's using for ant 
there's obviously been a process of Chinese whispers and that perhaps the original word was a Bactrian word or whatever for marmots that dig underground, scoop it up and, and dig up gold. And this is the theory. And, and it may be true or it may be not. But actually, the thing is that people who sneer at Herodotus for getting this wrong, what's amazing is that he knows anything at all about India, that he's even heard of it. Because mm. it's, you know, it's the far end of the world. This, you know, the, that's what's amazing about him. He may get things wrong, but what's remarkable and, and credible is that he knows enough about stuff to get them wrong. You know, I mean, that's, that's the incredible thing. That he was trying in the first place to find out. Trying in the first place. Yes, absolutely. Going back to cricket then, the authors and your place in that side, what, what, what are you? Are you a bowler batsman? Or I, well, so I, I'm, a, I'm a bowler um, and I'd, I'd always run my own team which was kind of faintly shambolic. And we, we kind of played in a variety of grounds around the M25. They weren't particularly scenic. And I just turned 40 and I was kind of thinking, oh, you know, is it time to retire? Have I probably done enough? And then the authors got revived and it came with a book deal. So it, got, it was founded by Charlie Campbell. He's an author, revived by Charlie. And he sold it to Bloomsbury, who the publisher is J.K. Rowling. So they were absolutely flush with Harry Potter cash. So we got a bit of the, the Harry Potter cash. And we were able to, um, so the, the device for the book, that it would be a, a, a journal of the year, cricket year, and that each author would write about a particular theme focused on a particular ground. So, for instance, we had one about cricket and history, and we played at Hambledon. We had one about cricket and beauty, and we played in the Valley of the Rocks. So it was that kind of thing. Um, and the one that I did was... We played at Eton against the Eton Thirds, and it was about age and youth. And the f- the very first game we played in Victoria Park, and it was kind of grim, and I hadn't realised it was an all-weather pitch, and I turned up without the proper footwear and skidded everywhere, and it was wet and awful, and, and I couldn't, and I just thought, oh, that's terrible, I'm not going to play. But I had to do this second one. And also, I wanted to see Eton. I'd never been to Eton. So we went there, and again, it was, it was 2012, and it was that kind of awful, grey, wet summer um, I don't even remember before the Olympics, it kind of rained almost nonstop. And we got there and there was this kind of low drizzle and we fielded and I opened the bowling and I kind of felt, you know, I felt so badly in the first match that every time I even got it faintly on the on the pitch, people would kind of applaud me like they, you know, they might applaud a, a kind of baby not sticking his finger in the socket or something. I mean, it was embarrassing. And and they got, I don't know, 200 or something. I didn't really start with the ball or anything. And, and I came off and I thought, this is miserable. I'm hopeless. It's all over. I don't want to start playing for this. Um, and then we batted. I was in at 11. We uh, we were obviously going to lose. We you know I went in and we still needed 80 to win. And this bowler kind of speared it in and I had a massive great smack and somehow it went for six I'd never hit a six before oh this is good this is what I, I've been looking at your Wikipedia page and yeah. it's the, the most famous six of all time or something it's preferred yeah. to because it was photographed because because this was a, a book we we had a, a, a we had um, Nayu, who was was professional photographer, who followed us around and took photographs. And he took three photographs of me hitting this six. And I just got onto Twitter. And I didn't really understand it. And I suddenly thought, I could just put this out as often as I like. So I would say that since then, there's barely a week where I haven't put out this photograph of me hitting a six. And it, and it was so exciting. And I felt so invigorated that it completely restored my enthusiasm for cricket. And so I've <laughs> played for a decade since. Uh, but I would say you know, I've never hit a six since. I've never really, uh, my batting has never really fired. 
but I have kind of spasms where I bowl fine and then spasms where I bowl terribly uh, and it kind of comes and goes. Um, I had a very good start to the season. I got lots of wickets and then I haven't, I, I think I've got one wicket in the past couple of months. It's kind of been a terrible sequence. And the most recent match against the Lord's Taverners had Matthew Hoggard and all kinds of people. And we'd somehow, we'd, we'd beaten them, I think, three times in a row. So this time they were determined to win and they needed 24 off the last over, which I bowled. <laughs> And they got it. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I, you know, that's my last over of the summer. So it's going to haunt me all, all winter. So um, I'm currently in a shall I retire state of mind at the moment. You can, no, you can't. You can, that can't be the full stop. That can't be the full stop. I hope not. But that's a nice draw in, though, Tom. You're going to basically be looking forlornly out the window thinking of that over, aren't you? I'm, well, I kind of wait, you know, I wake up in the middle of the night and think, oh, it's just a nightmare. Oh, no, it wasn't. <laughs> It really happened. Who was who was responsible? Oh, some twenty-two-year-old bastard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, he was kind of lean and young, and I think he, I think he. There was one guy who'd played for Kenya, and I think this guy was minor county. So it's incredibly unfair. I mean, because not only am I fifty-three, but I was never very good in the first place. <laughs> so I, could, I cling to that. But, you know, these things, these things. That can't be your last act as a cricketer. It can't be. I'm just looking at your your charitable page, looking at how much you've earned so far. It's going all right, isn't it? Yeah, I I think north of 60 grand, isn't it? Last time I Yeah, you've got, um, at the moment, it's currently on... 60,260 with the target of being 100,000. So listeners, viewers, you can actually help push that up a little bit closer. If we've got 40 grand out there, then it can... It can top I'd be very gratefully received. <laughs> Even if it's a fiver, anything. Because um, they are three very, very good causes. Um, yeah, homeless charities of various natures that uh, Tom's supporting with that. And if uh, we can help um, on the Cricket Badger podcast to push that up a little bit further, then that's that's fantastic. Um, well, is that... Because I'd like to say that that the cricket world generally has been brilliant about this. So, you know, you've got me on podcast. We've got these um, various videos, which is kind of like at the the top of my Twitter feed. But there there were several where um, we've got Alistair Cook, Jimmy Anderson, um, Hoggard, Caddick, various people, you know, all kind of sending best wishes, Ian Bell, um, Mark Butcher. Uh, so, you know, fantastic people rallying around kind of an, to an amazing degree. And everybody in the office has just been brilliant. I mean, it's because because although I'm the ostensibly the um, guy who's got the benefit, really, it's a, it's a kind of group effort for the authors. You know, we're all doing it. And it's, it's you know, it's something I, I, I think that um, has given structure to the year aside from the cricket. What's next for um, for you then in terms of your your historical Bent. So, you, you got any more TV work planned? Anything else planned for getting your teeth into? No, I, I, I did this last TV one where we went to northern Iraq and walked around among the bones, and I thought, you know, I don't really want to do this anymore. So, I am currently. Uh, I've, I've done three books. I've done, I've done two books on, uh, on on the Romans. I've done one on Julie, the age of Julius Caesar. Then I did one on on the age of the first emperors, which is Caligula and Nero and all that crew. And now I'm doing one on the kind of heyday of the Roman Empire, which is um, Pompeii, the Colosseum, uh, all that kind of stuff. Hadrian. Um, so that's what I'm doing at the moment. I, I can't believe. I mean, just just tilt your camera back up again. All, all of those books behind you, and you you tell me that you read pretty, basically every word that's behind you there. 
us as very exaggeration, but certainly they've all been used. They've all been used. That's a pretty impressive library there, and uh, it's been a real pleasure to to meet you today, Tom. I wish you every success with taking that total up to as close to that target and beyond it as possible of hundred thousand. If you can give a talk, it's uh, giverg.uk forward slash Tom Holland, and I'll stick that on the uh, podcast text as well so that people can follow that link to uh, try and support you as well is that is the walk the last of your um initiatives this year or have you got anything else to do i haven't decided um we're we're working on that so we're doing it with um matt thacker who i know you know who kind of fixed all this and stuff so there's i think that there'll be more to come but um we're we're working on it because obviously 40 40 to go it's kind of like we're running out of time you know the, the overs are ticking away but that word is never too late to hit 24 off the final over <laughs> exactly that's probably the lesson i should be drawing yes yeah, so we can think of some equivalent of 24 off the final over but we're, we're working on it tom been a pleasure wish you all the best for your future endeavors and uh, thank you very much indeed for joining me on today's cricket budget podcast thanks ever so much for having me thanks a lot Podcast Network.